Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Greg DiCaruso, who's a professor of philosophy at SUNY Corning. He's also a visiting fellow at the New College of Humanities in London, an honorary professor of philosophy at the Macquarie University in Sydney. Greg is also a co-director of the Justice Without Retribution Network, housed at the University of Aberdeen School of Law. His research focuses on free will, moral responsibility, punishment, philosophy of law, jurisprudence, social and political philosophy, moral philosophy, philosophy of mind, moral psychology, and neurolaw. He's published numerous books, including Rejecting Retributism, Free Will, Punishment, and Criminal Justice, Just Desserts, Debating Free Will with Daniel Dennett, uh, both books uh, this year's publications, Free Will and Consciousness, A Determinist Account of the Illusion of Free Will, Exploring the Illusion of Free Will and Moral Responsibility, Science and Religion, Five Questions, and others. He joins me today to talk about free will, free will skepticism, moral responsibility, and our collective views on punishment. Greg, uh, it's a true pleasure to host you on The Voices of War. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Looking forward to chatting. I, I must say, I, I dare say a lot of my audience might be slightly perplexed by this episode, uh, and uh, uh, but I, I really do uh, think that it's highly relevant to our discussions of conflict, uh, war, and so on, uh, as uh, I hope we'll, uh, we'll unpack uh, as we go through. But maybe before we uh, delve into the world of uh, determinism and free will, uh, maybe we can start with hearing a little about uh, your journey into philosophy and, and particularly the philosophy of, uh, of free will. How did, how did you come into the field? Yeah, it's always hard to analyze oneself and figure out how they end up where they do. But um, I started off as a jazz major pursuing music and thought I was going to be a upright bass player. Um, but I went to a school in New Jersey that was uh, well-renowned for their jazz program, but I just happened to fall in with some philosophy students and started taking some philosophy classes along the way. And um, by, by, you know, my third year, I had accrued enough credit to essentially uh, get a, a philosophy degree. So um, I had this sort of conflict as to which route I was going to go. And I, you know, it, a lot of it was just luck, you know, in terms of the people I met. And it turned out that the group I had sort of formed as friends um, all went on to be professional philosophers. So we started having reading groups and discussions outside of class. And, um, you know, I always had that interest. I'd always been interested in these sort of big theoretical questions. And mm-hmm. I do think there's a connection between the creative part of music and the sort of creative part of philosophy as well. But, um, and then- How, how so? That, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. How so? Yeah, I think that um, there's a part of the brain that sort of, um, especially with jazz, this sort of improvisational ability to sort of um, to be able to have your ears open, listen what the other people are doing, to sort of improvise as you go, um, basically composing music on the spot. And and philosophers, I think, are really good at being able to learn the skills, especially the conversational skills of being able to listen, the dialectical method of of sort of um, taking things as they come to you, but also sort of responding in various ways and building arguments. Philosophy has a creative and a critical component, 
you know, when you analyze other arguments, it's this mm. very careful kind of critical dissection. But then there's this creative part, I think, where you build and analyze arguments yourself. Um, and so I just found it very natural for some reason. Mm. Um, mm. And then I just decided to um, follow some of my <laughs> the people ahead of me and, and ended up going to graduate school. I thought I was going to work in philosophy of mind. That was my, my initial interest, cognitive science, philosophy of mind. And for many years in graduate school, that's what I focused on. Um, but towards the end, I started to realize that there was a kind of connection between what I was doing in philosophy of mind and these issues about free will. And I've always, I've always been interested in the question about free will. Um, so my dissertation was on consciousness and free will. And then that turned into my first book. Right. Um, but as I've gotten further along, people started asking me more and more about the practical implications of my view. Um, I'm sure we'll explain that mm. I doubt free will, I deny the existence of free will. And so people started to worry, what does that mean for morality? What does that mean for our criminal justice system? What does mm. that mean for interpersonal relationships? And um, I thought maybe I'd do this for a couple of years and move on to some other topics. And yet I've gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> so, um, a large part of my career has been focused on cashing out these various um, you know, consequences of free will skepticism for different domains of our, of our lives, including the criminal law, including criminal justice, mm. um, public policy, but also, um, you know, how it affects our emotional inter and interpersonal relationships in terms of attitudes like moral anger and resentment and, you know, retributive impulses and punishment. Yeah things like that. I mean, these are all amazingly deep and complex topics, but I think you're bringing it down to free will, it's such a fundamental question about who we are as yeah. individuals, as collect as a species. Uh, and it is also quite a, um, it's quite a visceral subject. Uh, I, uh, I, I subscribe to, to the same line of thinking and I've just read your book Just Desserts and, and I must admit I sided with you the whole way through uh, so perhaps I'm slightly biased but I'm certainly I would consider myself a free will skeptic a lot of my listeners will know that I've uh, that I'm a long-term meditator and I think that's something we'll, we'll, we'll touch on later on uh, about the idea of self uh, but maybe before we unpack the some of the questions that go with it and maybe even why it's such a touchy subject Maybe you can lay the lay the land for us. What are the kind of principal positions uh, yeah. that exist in this debate? Uh, because I think that will give us a nice launching platform to then delve deeper into some of these questions. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, you know, try not to overwhelm people with terminology because it could get quite complicated uh, yeah. quickly. But um, there are different possible ways that one could um, question or or notions that could threaten the existence of free will. First, let me define what I mean by free will. So for me, free will is the kind of control and action that agents would have um, in a way that would make them morally responsible for their actions. So mm -hmm. um, I keep free will and moral responsibility closely tied. Um, in fact, I define free will in terms of the control and action that would make agents um, morally responsible in the way that we could be justified in blaming them for their actions, holding them morally responsible in a very specific sense, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. what I call a basic dessert sense, but basically that they would be truly deserving of things like blame and praise and punishment and reward. Yeah. So just to put that into context, so somebody does, as a very banal example, somebody does exceptionally well in an exam, 
you know, yeah. we, we, we have this, the, the natural inclination for us is to say, Hey, well done. Congratulations. You've really worked hard. You deserve to get those yeah. marks. Conversely, yeah. someone who flunks it and fails, well, it's obvious, you, uh, you know, I could have told you you were going to fail because you didn't study. It's your fault, et cetera, et cetera. Right. right. That's the yeah. two basic, right? Uh, uh, as, as, as what we talk about or how you define, uh, a free will. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, the title of the book with Dennett is just desserts. And so I, I, I quite underestimated people's familiarity with the, with that phrase, but, you know, people thinking deserts or what we have after dinner. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, but just desserts is sort of the punishment that one deserves or the praise that one deserves. And, and so usually it's the idea that the person was free and morally responsible when they, when they engaged in some wrongdoing. So they deserve to be punished or, or blamed. Yeah. Or because they could have done otherwise. That's the, they could have done right. otherwise, right? Yeah. Could have done otherwise. Also, sometimes the idea is that, well, since the agent is the source of their actions mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it's a reflection of their true self that they deserve some sort of reaction. Um, so historically, there have been a number of threats to this idea. Um, you know, I won't go through one of them, you know, but theologically, there was a concern of God's foreknowledge. If he knows everything that's going to happen, how can agents be free and morally responsible? The more scientific um, concern um, arose with Newtonian physics and the development of modern physics with the idea of determinism. And so determinism is sort of the thesis that facts about the remote past in combination with the laws of nature entail is only one fixed future. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the only thing that could have happened. Um, So you're boiling the water. The idea is that if you knew all the laws of nature and all the antecedent conditions, the metal content of the, the kettle, the amount of heat that's being implied, the water is determined to boil, and not only determine the boil, but determine the boil at precisely the moment it boiled. It couldn't have boiled at any other moment. Mm, mm, and mm. the fear was that if determinism is true, how could agents be free and morally responsible? Mm. Um, and so three views have sort of emerged. One view was called hard determinism, which sort of says determinism is true, Everything that happens is causally determined to happen. Um, and because of that, agents um, are not free and morally responsible. And the argument was largely that determinism rules out free will because it rules out, as you said, either the ability to do otherwise, you couldn't have done anything different than what you did, um, or it rules out the possibility that the agent was the ultimate source of their actions because mm-hmm. the source of their actions drained back to factors to some Prior. causes, yeah, upstream yeah, causes, like yeah. chemistry, yeah. how they were raised, the circumstances, the, the weather, the whether they slept, had they had their coffee, all of these conditional yeah. factors that have brought us to the now, which Into basically, it, and 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 if I understand it correctly, and sorry to interrupt you, just, just so I can contextualize it, uh, but uh, so I don't miss the point. In a perfectly deterministic world, if I had the ability to calculate all the forces at play, I could tell the future. That's, uh, you know, if, if I, yeah, if I had theory, the, right. theoretically, theory, yeah. if I had the ability to, to calculate all the forces acting upon me, I could predict exactly what I'm going to say three minutes from now. But yeah. that, that would be, yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and in reality, unfortunately, the, the, the factors are too broad and too diverse. And it could never really happen. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then there was a view called libertarianism, not to be confused with the political uh, view, but this is a sort of metaphysical view about free will. And I think this idea actually came before the political view. 
Um, but it's the idea that, well, yeah, if determinism is true, we also lack free will. But this view rejects determinism and mm -hmm. tries to preserve some sort of what you might call indeterminate free will. Um, and so there are different ways libertarians try to do this. Um, nowadays, some of them will point to quantum mechanics as a as a as a um, evidence that maybe there's some fundamental indeterminacy at the lowest level of the universe, and that somehow it could rise up or percolate up to the level of human agency. Right. So, so a uh, uh, randomness, I, I'd imagine. So it's a, it's the now interplaying with so everything that's been everything that's come beforehand to now. Yeah, uh, it, the things could have different types of outcomes could follow. Okay, interplaying um, some random everything, events. keeping everything exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, although some libertarians introduce other notions, like notions of the self that are quite mysterious, where the agent could somehow cause their own actions but not be caused by anything. Or some people posit even. Um, notions of substances, selves that are different than their physical okay. brains and their physical makeup. And then there's one last view called compatibilism that is um, the view that Dan Dennett defends mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. And this is a view that says, well, you can accept determinism and still hold agents free and morally responsible because what's really required for free will is not the, the falsity of determinism, but that agents are causes of their actions in some appropriate way, that mm -hmm. um, they're free from coercion, from external agents coercing them. They're free from um, uh, any sort of internal coercion due to, say, like a mental disability. But as long as agents act voluntarily, as long as they act on their own reasons or something, um, as long as they approve of their own motivational states, then they're free and we can hold them responsible. Mm. Let me just say that my own view is sort of neutral on determinism. So I'm a kind of um, modern free will skeptic. And my view is sort of like, it doesn't matter whether determinism is true or, or indeterminism is true. Mm -hmm. We would lack free will either way. Regardless, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. that determinism is incompatible with free will, but so too is indeterminism. Mm. Um, because agents would be no more in control of indeterminate events than they'd be in control of determinate events. Um, and so uh, the kind of indeterminacy that the most plausible kinds of accounts of free will would posit, mm. I don't think are able to preserve the control required for agents to be right. you know, as free in, and more responsible in this sense. As in, I can't control randomness. So even though it might be indeterminate in, you know, in the libertarian sense, for me, as the agent, I still have zero. There, there is no free will there uh, yeah. because I don't control in any way. Do I decide what randomly may or may not occur? That's true. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that would be the concern with you know uh, at least one kind of libertarianism. The other mm -hmm. kind of libertarianism, I would just say, doesn't fit with our best scientific theories about the world. Right. Um, it runs into other sort of problems, and um, you know, not to bog things down, but I, I reject that notion too. And so in the end, I sort of say there's problems with all these different ways of trying to preserve free will. And then and as a result, the only rational position left to adopt is skepticism. Hmm. And so skeptics either doubt or deny the existence of free will. I'm more of a, um, a sort of global skeptic who sort of says um, that who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. Mm -hmm. Whether those be determinism, indeterminacy, or luck, which I might mention mm -hmm. that yes. in a moment. Yeah. And because of that, we're never morally responsible in this relevant sense. 
Mm. Um, let me just throw in there because I mentioned luck. Um, mm -hmm. You know, your, your listeners already might be like, "Oh my God, that's a lot of information." <laughs> you can almost forget some of the issues about determinism and indeterminism. Another sort of independent concern people have is simply um, a problem, the, the problem of luck. And so, mm -hmm. um, another argument I, I present, I sort of present two distinct arguments against free will. But the luck argument is um, follows a philosopher named Neil Levy, who actually lives in Australia, um, at least half of the year. And so um, was the other half at Oxford. Yeah, half um, is luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the idea is that our actions would be the result of um, either two types of luck. So there's what's called constitutive luck, which is the kind of luck that makes you the person you are. Constitutive luck is the kind of luck that shapes you as an agent your psychological state, your, your, your predispositions, your likes and dislikes. Um, and constitutive luck could be a byproduct of, you know, who you were born to, who your parents were, what society you were raised in. Genetics. Um, whether you were rich yeah. or poor, yeah. right, genetics. Yeah. All these factors that you ultimately have no control over, yeah. right? Yeah. And then there's what's called present luck, which is luck around the time of action. And that could be the luck of what – Thoughts come to me in that particular moment, whether my mind wanders or doesn't wander, what reasons become most salient or what reasons weigh most heavily when I'm making a choice or deliberating, whether the color of the wall could somehow be affecting me in a way that I'm unaware of, or whether situational factors could be influencing me in ways that I'm not aware of. Mm -hmm. And that would be present luck. And then the argument is that constitutive luck and present luck swallow all that our actions are, are, are the result of either constitutive luck, present luck, or both. Mm. And mm. luck undermines free will and moral responsibility because, again, it's the result of factors beyond the control of the agent. Yeah. And so whether the, the threat is determinism, that everything that happens is determined by antecedent conditions and the laws of nature, or whether the threat is luck, I argue that we have good reason for denying that agents are free and morally responsible in this in this fundamental sense. Yeah, uh, uh, again, I, I've been nodding along as you were saying because that speaks a lot to me in the way I, the way I've uh, come to think about things. Uh, I think I was first introduced to this kind of idea of the environment having an impact. I think it was Kurt Lewin. The the uh, uh, behavior is a function of the environment uh, and the personality. So it's an interplay yeah. of the person and the environment that's what's going to determine behavior yeah. uh, and 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 i think that for most people that's something that's quite acceptable we most of us when we start having these discussions we can comfortably agree that of course the environment so environment has uh, an impact you know if i'm if i haven't slept for uh, 48 hours i'm basically uh, legally drunk uh, and 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 everybody who hasn't slept the night knows what that feels like and therefore yeah, it affects your deliberations your choices your actions everything right so so it's just the and i think the sensitivity is at the point of now this is where we which is why i think uh, dan dennett's position is probably the most palatable to people uh, yes. because it's the one that allows you to kind of i don't want to say sit on the fence because he doesn't sit on the fence he's quite quite precise about what he means right. um but but it allows you to accept determinism up to now that everything that i am right now is because of everything that's happened before uh, and we can all trace our lineage and our lives back to why we are the way we are if we you know this is why we go to psychologists right to yeah. explore how our childhood has impacted the person we are now yeah, exactly. but people are very sensitive to this idea of well hold on but 
the future, I have, uh, I have the power to decide. I have free will. What, what, why do you think we are so, and, and I've literally seen visceral reactions when I've had these debates with people where, you know, I've, I've in some way would try to walk them down the path of trying to agree with me that really, you know, free will is an illusion, if that. Uh, and there is a, oftentimes a visceral response and, and a physical yeah. response as though I've, I've somehow threatened them. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I, I think um, people, well, there's a couple of reasons, I think. I mean, people fear the implications of this. Um, and I think it's partly due to, in my view, a misunderstanding of what the implications would be. But people think it would lead to nihilism or despair yeah. or we were just like criminals run free. Um, Dan Dennett in the book sort of repeatedly, uh, to my annoyance, repeatedly sort of says, well, we end up in a state, in a Hoptian state of yes, nature, it might yeah. be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, in short. Yeah. My experience has been people um, don't reject free will, uh, sorry, free will skepticism um, as much based on the arguments. Um, they see the arguments, as you say, they, they reject it more based on the consequence. They just don't like the consequences of the view. And so sort of um, instinctively sort of want to reject it. Hmm. The hmm. other thing I think that plays a big role is, is uh, phenomenology, which is the way we experience our own actions. People just don't feel like they're determined. They don't hmm. feel like the their actions are the, are the result of factors beyond their control. So from there's a kind of... Um, I think it's a poor kind of inference, but it's sort of like, I feel myself free, therefore I am free. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they, they sort of say, well, look, I, um, you know, how could you deny how I experience my, my own actions in this way? Um, but, but I've argued in the past that that phenomenology is misleading and that we could explain why we feel that way, despite the fact it's an illusion. Um, but I do think that that plays a role. I think the two things that really play the biggest role is how we experience our own actions mm -hmm. and the fear that we need moral, we need moral responsibility for civil society to somehow function properly. Um, now, I've tried to argue against both of those views, saying not only can we live without the belief in free will, that it would be beneficial. Um, so I actually consider myself what's called an optimistic skeptic. I'm optimistic about the implications of free will skepticism on our lives. Um, and I argue that the, the living without the beliefs in free will and moral responsibility, in particular, just desserts, getting rid of the notion of just desserts, and with it, with the notion of retribution, um, we would actually be better off um, mm -hmm. and that we could adopt perhaps even more humane and effective practices and policies if we begin to view people as embedded in social systems, as affected by, you know, social constructs and social conditioning and uh, mm -hmm. socialization, um, that once we begin to realize that give up this belief in free will and, and just desserts, we can look more deeply into the causes that shape individuals and, uh, and their behaviors. And I think this can lead to more effective and humane practices and policies. So... Which I, and, and again, I couldn't agree more because I think, again, as I made the point, well, we go to psychologists to try and resolve our issues. Yeah. By that, by doing that very thing. Yet when we, you know, at a micro level, but when we try to apply that at a macro level, uh, we seem to be somehow resistant that hold on, even society functions in this way. And if we set up, we know through decades and decades of research that, you know, where you're born, uh, you know, what socioeconomic class you're born, we know that that's going to have a particular, you know, th that it's going to 
it might not determine it from, from birth, but it will increase the probability of certain outcomes in your life. You know, whether you, yeah, yeah. If you're so born in poverty, you'll, yeah, you know, you'll end up in poverty. Yeah. Sorry. One of go. the things I do in my, my other new book, Rejecting Retributivism, mm-hmm. um, is I, I sort of, um, I lay out my arguments for free will. I, I lay out an alternative approach of criminal justice, but there's a whole chapter on what I call the social determinants of criminal behavior, the mm-hmm. social determinants of violence. Um, and what I try to argue is that, um, and this is well supported by um, a wealth of data. I cite, you know, hundreds to thousands of studies mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. chapter that seem to indicate that the social determinants of violence are very similar to the social determinants of health. So things like poverty, um, low socioeconomic status, um, uh, things like um, uh, poor nutrition, things like environmental health, um, mental health, homelessness. Um, all of these are factors of um, um, abuse, being exposed to violence yourself. Uh, there's a wealth of social determinants. And we know intuitively, for example, that these affect health, health outcomes. Hmm. So we know people who are born in, into um, low socioeconomic um, groups hmm. or into poverty have higher rates of type 2 diabetes, higher rates of morbidity, higher hmm. rates of heart disease. But there's no greater correlate with incarceration rates than socioeconomic status. So we know that if you're born into um, you know, uh, poverty, that this is going to negatively affect one's life outcomes mm. and could mm. potentially have you know, ramifications. Now, it's not the only determinant. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of other factors. But we know that when we look at um, things like just one example, if you look at women who are incarcerated, um, there was a study that found that 85 to 90 percent of them had been victims of violence before their incarceration. Mm, yeah. That is, they've been either um, uh, have experienced domestic violence, rape, uh, sexual assault, child abuse, some sort of violence. Mm, mm. Uh, and we have this idea of black and white, sort of good and bad, the cowboy in the white hat is the good guy and the person in the black hat is the bad guy. And the criminal is the perpetrator and the victim is the, the you know, the has been the victimized. Mm. But the line is not that clear. When you look at the lives of those who are incarcerated, what you often find is that they live lives of hardship and that almost all of them, the vast majority of them, have been victims themselves in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 85 to 90 percent of incarcerated women have been abused and that abuse has affected them psychologically Mm -hmm. and that, that psychological effect has had a big impact on their lives. Now, there are multiple reasons that you might engage in criminal acts, but one of these is, you know, like they might uh, engage in a criminal act against their abuser. Most yeah. of these are in co-addictive relationships. So there's violence, but there's also a co-addiction. Um, and so they might end up being addicted, resorting to petty crimes to get by, but often they're the ones that are forced to commit the petty crimes. Hmm. Um, and the other big cause is essentially that domestic violence or, or rape or sexual assault has a psychological effect on women and unemployment rates are higher. So they're suffering from essentially, you know, um, post-traumatic stress disorder and other kinds of um, psychological effects of the abuse. They can't hold steady jobs. And because they can't hold steady jobs, their incomes are negatively affected, which of course is then the resort to petty crimes to get by. Hmm. If you want to prevent criminal behavior, if you want to effectively prevent violence, the best way to do it is to address the social determinants yeah. of, the, of the actions, to address the systemic causes. And the same is true across the board. Like, for example, there's a study done on um, men that committed violent acts in a 
in a prison in Boston. And what they found was um, 50% of them had been beaten as children. Yeah. And 40%, 40% had seen someone killed in front of them. Mm. Um, just think about that. 40% of those people incarcerated committing violent crimes have themselves seen someone killed. Mm. And that's because if you grow up in a community of violence, if you grow up in an inner city where there's gang violence all around you all the time, um, that's going to have an effect on your yeah. life. And we also know that high stress environments have an effect on people. But they rewire the brain, right? Yeah, it has a direct effect on brain development. Yeah, yeah. The, the gray matter of the brain is thinner in, yeah. in, in people who grow up in, in poverty than people who grow up in wealth. Yeah. And we know that the neurological development is affected by the circumstances. The neurological development affects behavioral development and moral development, which affects their outcomes, mm. their behaviors. Mm. Um, and so the more and more we learn about how these social determinants affect outcomes, yeah. um, the more I think we should begin to view individuals more holistically and see them as embedded in these systems. And it also should um, tell us that one of the things we need to do to successfully prevent these poor outcomes is to shift the focus to prevention and social justice, yeah. to addressing the systemic inequalities that cause these outcomes in the first place. Yeah. I mean, the, the way I see it, the, the way I explain it in my mind is, you know, we go through life and every interaction with every person, every circumstance, every moment, we hit some sort of a bumper. And that yeah. bumper, it's it's almost like a like a never-ending pinball machine, right? Yeah. And I'm the ball that's hitting various bumpers as I'm going along. And every bumper is a person or a circumstance. And that changes me in whatever minute way or major yeah. way. Something yeah. might change me significantly and dramatically. And yeah. and and what we for somebody born into you know abject po poverty, while we might while it's easy for us to sit on our high horse and say they have the chances, if they really wanted to, they could. And also because we use that, you know, small percentage of people to manage to get out, to escape yeah, yeah. the trap. Well, yeah, look, they can do it. But then when we explore the, well, we peel it back and you realize, well, hold on a minute. They managed to hit different bumpers. There were different people along the way that bumped them in a different direction. Exactly. It's a matter of luck, right? Yeah, so exactly. That's, it, yeah. It could yeah, be fine. a matter of meeting a supportive teacher who introduces them to, a, you know, um, a hobby that turns yeah. into their passion. Someone who and helps you fill out a scholarship application yeah. or, or like it, whatever, you know, just pure. Yeah. Or uh, the luck of just meeting a friend who mm -hmm. um, diverts them in a different direction. And, yeah. and so it, it seems, and it's sad, but it seems like, you know, this, especially in the United States, we have this idea of the cause of sui, the person who could lift themselves up from the bootstraps um, and overcome all their circumstances and mm -hmm. they're, Purely self-made. Yeah. And it's really built into the mythology of America, this mythology of meritocracy and the American dream. Um, but it's also wrapped up in the idea, and it's very much associated with the with the political right in, in the United in the United States. This idea that, well, because I'm 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 purely self-made, I deserve all the praise for my accomplishments. But equally, those that fail are somehow deserving of condemnation. That if you're in poverty, it's due to your lack of effort. It's due to your laziness. It's due to your own free will. Um, and this mythology has reigned for a long time. In fact, I get Daniel Dennett to agree to a quote by Ronald Reagan in the book, which was interesting, um, which is a quote that I think Ronald Reagan made way before he was president. Um, but it was something like we shouldn't, you know, every time a come, we have to get beyond the idea that every time a crime is committed, um, that it's society's fault, and we have to re return to the 
to the to the notion of individual responsibility. Of course, Ronald Reagan was also one of the, the main drivers of mass incarceration in the United mm-hmm. States. And so the idea is that, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you view everything through the lens of individual responsibility, um, everything, you know, the right response to uh, wrongdoing is punitive, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is punish. Yeah. But to punish the woman who's already been victimized, right, for, for, for now um, having the negative effects of that victimization seems like double jeopardy, right? Yeah. You got screwed in the initial lottery, yeah. and now you're being penalized the second time for having, you know, not overcome those poor effects on you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have, a, a you know, an argument for we're not going to just let people run free. We're not going to mm-hmm. just let, you know, violent criminals um, walk the streets, but we have to view them differently mm-hmm. than this kind of purely reactive approach that's based in the idea that all wrongdoing and all, all um, moral behavior, right, deserves praise and deserves um, the rewards. And the same thing is, you know, economic policy in the United States is largely based upon this kind of mythology as well, right? The reward mm-hmm. those who succeed. Well, those who succeed often have, you know, you know, a number of advantages and, and matters of luck that give them these advantages. And yeah. there aren't sort of, you know, equal starting points for all people. And there are more hurdles that have to be overcome yeah. by people who have disadvantages and certain yeah. kinds of, you know, poor outcomes due to luck. Again, nothing that's due to their own circumstances. And I think this is the difficult thing for people to, to because it, like you said, you know, meritocracy is so deeply embedded in our, certainly in Australia, yeah. the Australian dream. I mean, you know, you know, if you work hard, you'll make it. Uh, but I read recently uh, uh, Michael Sandel's uh, The Tyranny of Merit. Fantastic oh, yeah, book yeah. because it, it, it just peels back everything you've just said in so, particularly in the US. Uh, you know, about the, the, the success rates and how long, how many generations it takes in the, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, how many generations it takes, uh, you know, I think it's, I think he says six generations on average to get from the bottom, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll forget the, the figures won't be accurate, I think, but kind of the bottom 10% to the top 10%, something like that. Uh, you know, it takes six generations, which is not part of the American dream. That is not, you know, the American dream is that, you can go, you can be a migrant and work hard and, you know, within your own lifetime, you can go from rags to riches. Uh, yeah. And that's very much, uh, I think that's broadly speaking, that's also uh, the Australian dream in many ways. It's the, you yeah. know, the, the house with white picket fence and 2.2 children. That's the, you know, that's, yeah. and you, everybody can, um, can have that dream. But I think take, maybe not taking it away, but threatening that through this idea that free will doesn't exist. In other words, that, well, hold on. If if you know what I've earned is not my own doing, yeah. uh, I think that puts a that's a that's a that's a significant pressure on one's identity because we identify with our professional achievements, we identify yeah. with who we are, with you know our peer groups, our, our social standing, and that's part of the idea of success is you know that you need well, to climb yeah, me, the social hierarchy. Yeah, sorry. Come yeah, on. let yeah. me say something. I mean, mm-hmm. so I want to make sure that people don't misunderstand the skeptical view because although I deny that agents are basically morally responsible in this basic sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other notions of responsibility, I think, that remain in place. So one of them, in philosophical terms, is called attributability or attributable uh-huh. responsibility. And that means you could attribute various accomplishments to individuals. You could attribute various um, personality traits and various um, um, achievements I don't deny those, right? So, so for example, there's a great example. I don't know if I use it in, in that book or elsewhere, but there's a, um, a quote I use from Albert Einstein. He was 
interviewed in um, a newspaper and he was a free will skeptic. He was a determinist and he denied free will. And they asked him about his accomplishments of general relativity and his scientific theories. And he says he deserves no praise for them, which is a kind of radical idea, right? But he, he acknowledges that, you know, who he is and, and the byproduct of his, his achievements are due to factors ultimately beyond his mm, control. Mm. Now, I think you could say that, but you could also attribute to Einstein um, creativity. You could attribute to Einstein originality in his thought. And you could do that by basically relational kinds of assessments of his peers, right? You mm -hmm. can say that compared to other physicists, he was more original. You could say compared, like Miles Davis was more original than maybe other trumpet players were at the time. You could attribute creativity. You could attribute personality traits like his work ethic and um, his stick-to-itness or whatever mm -hmm. virtue mm -hmm. he had. Mm -hmm. You could say they belong to him. You could say all of that without saying he deserved that he self-made them, yeah. and that he somehow deserves praise for them. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that we could we could still say that you know these achievements are yours; they belong mm -hmm. to you as a person, and that we could attribute various traits to individuals. We could also say that individuals are causally responsible for various outcomes. We mm -hmm. could say all of that again without thinking that they were self-made and that they are deserving of ultimate, you know, basic. Um, uh, dessert for, 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 for those traits, both when those traits are good and when they're bad. And so and Einstein was able to see that, you know, it's a very hard thing for people to see. People see it sometimes though. For example, when one turns out well as a moral person, sometimes upon reflection, people could see and say, you even hear them say things like, well, that was because, you know, thanks to mom and dad, or, you know, yeah. I was I was raised well, you know, that might even be a common retort someone says when you say, oh, you're such a good person. And you could say, well, thank my parents for that. Or, yeah. And that's a kind of acknowledgement that my moral character was shaped by how I was raised and the kind of moral education and moral direction that was given to me by these outside forces, particularly your family and your, your parents. And that's a kind of acknowledgement that sometimes we could see. Hmm. But then we tend to want to forget it when it comes to other types of achievements, other types of character traits. Yeah. Um, but when you really reflect upon those character traits, like I used to, I used to like, you know, weird examples, but, you know, I, I, I use this kind of example with my students. You know, I say, I'm not wearing a black shirt today, but I tend to wear a lot of black shirts. And so one day a student asked me like, you know, why do you always wear black shirts? And I was like, that's a great question. You know, let's think about this. <laughs> and so yeah. let's say I'm in the store. Right? I wore a black shirt because my closet is full of black shirts. Uh -huh. But let's go back to when I purchased the black shirt and I'm standing there in the dressing room. And my wife might hand me a yellow shirt. She says like, you really need to diversify your wardrobe. <laughs> well, let's take that moment when I put the shirt on and I look in the mirror. Okay. Well, I'm looking in the mirror and I, I put on the yellow shirt and I react. Now, we don't control that reaction. We have no ultimate control over our likes and dislikes. We, we are reacting to our likes and dislikes and our preferences. Mm, yeah. uh, and then I put on the black shirt. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to buy the black shirt. Now, I'm, I'm, buying, I'm making my choice based on my habitual likes and dislikes. But my habitual likes and dislikes have been shaped by factors that go back my whole life how I was raised, you know, also the climate in which I'm raised. If yeah. I was raised in Hawaii where it was sunny all the time, maybe I wouldn't like black. Some of it might have to do to my personality. Some of it might have to do with 
I grew up in New York City and was and you know came to maturity in New York City. And so the fashion sense and the and the peer influence of other people, mm-hmm. uh, those kind of things all influence your likes and your dislikes. Yeah. But if you don't control your likes and your dislikes, if you don't control your reactions and mm-hmm. your choices are a byproduct of those likes and dislikes and 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 reactions, then you're not ultimately controlling the choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it might feel voluntary, right? And that's what yeah. we can also ascribe to a voluntary action because yes, it feels like I'm making a decision, but it's it, when you really put it back. It's a decision that ultimately is beyond my control. Yeah. 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 So my wife doesn't like mushrooms, and I just say like mushrooms. You know that pisses her off more because <laughs> you can't just flip a sh- switch and 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 like something that you're habitually, or maybe her it's a texture issue or something. And so um, you can recondition yourself, but the causes for those reconditioning would itself be the byproduct of factors beyond my. Control. What drove you to do it exactly? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Let's say yeah. I eat chocolate all the time, and I believe there's chocolate in the kitchen. And I desire chocolate, and so I always seem to be eating the chocolate. And one day I go join Chocoholics Anonymous to try to get control of my chocolate cravings. The question would be, what, what, caused, what, what would be the cause of the desire to stop desiring chocolate? Yes. Yeah. Where did that come from? And that itself would be causally determined by factors beyond my control. It might be my wife, my wife commenting about my weight. It might be my doctor mentioning my high cholesterol. It might be something I read in a newspaper. But something shifted the scales that my desire for chocolate weakened. Or mm-hmm. if it didn't weaken, my desire to stop eating chocolate got stronger. And now I make different choices. And then I take steps to recondition myself or help myself behaviorally yeah. overcome it. But that's not the that's not the um, overcoming of free will. That's just a new, like you put it. I hit a few different bumpers, and those bumpers redirected my beliefs and my desires and shifted my psychological weights yeah. such that my actions drove me in a different direction. So people yeah. tend to point to those as examples of free will, but those are just further examples about how our actions are shaped by conditions beyond our control absolutely that, that's such a example that's a great example I and mean, i used to be a heavy smoker uh, uh, many years ago and i knew smoking's bad yeah. i knew it they couldn't deny it yeah. but you know i also wanted to keep smoking so there was this yeah. cognitive dissonance and and we know that when there's a cognitive dissonance we will will we will try to suppress one of those uh, yeah. and sub probably subconsciously or whatever i suppressed the 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 knowledge that smoking is bad until such time that that you know that bumper kept getting hit and hit and hit and hit and hit until such time where I realized, hold on a minute, like I'm struggling to walk up a set of stairs and this is having a serious impact on my life. So there's a bunch of things that have driven my ultimate behavior to quit smoking for good. Uh, but but you know I can easily say oh, I was strength of character it was my free will. Well, I, I don't think so. It was just that life has led me to the point where okay now I've hit enough bumpers. Uh, yeah. to to push me in this direction uh, yeah. but this takes me to another important point and uh, and and one that uh, i think is 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 perhaps with this kind of zeros in at the moment of now and this is the idea of thought or the self uh, because this is one and this is maybe where my meditative practice or, or deep practice has made me realize how reliant we are on this idea of the self in the mind you know and 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 you know i often when i speak about this to people i say okay how about for just for one minute stop thinking for one minute if you have free will, if you are in control of the mind or the self, just stop thinking for one minute. That's all. 
you know, it's, it's of course not going to happen because a chattering mind will awaken in a matter of seconds if you're, if you're yeah. lucky. Um, so w- what's your thought? How, how do you define firstly the mind, especially since you've done so much work on, on the theory of your mind, but then the self as well, you know, because those two are so closely intertwined. Yeah, I mean, in going back to sort of the phenomenology of free will, the the feeling we have, we have this feeling of a self that sort of stands behind our actions and is the cause of our own actions. But um, there are various ways that we could see that that that's kind of an illusion. And mm. so there's the the sort of personal experiential route, which you and Sam Harris and probably others have gone through through meditation and and sort of seeing through and diminishing the ego and, and the self. Um, the other is a sort of cognitive science, what it mm. tells us about the mind and how the mind works. Um, and so a lot of times what I like to see is that there is no robust self and there is really no unified self that stands behind our actions and 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 is sort of like the uh, causes, the, the, the uncaused cause of what mm. we do. Mm. Um, and a good way to kind of get at it is also look at how the um, notion of the self and experience of the self could break down in various disorders. Um, and so there's all kinds of different ways our, our um, sense of self can, can go wrong. There's, there's what I might call the, um, the sense of ownership. Mm-hmm. I have ownership over my actions and um, um, they belong to me. And then there's a sense of authorship. I author these actions. I author these thoughts and I control my mm. movements and my limbs. There are disorders where each of those can go awry and they could go wrong. Um, mm. And they help see, show us how fragile the notion of the self is. So, for example, um, thought insertion, schizophrenic thought insertion. Now, not all people with schizophrenia have this experience. But there are people who actually feel like the thoughts that are in their head, the thoughts that are going through their stream of consciousness, do not belong to them. They're friends' Mm. thoughts. Mm. Now, that's a sense of where ownership goes wrong. They're they're thoughts in my consciousness, in my mind, in my stream, Mm. but they don't belong to me. I don't own them in any way. And when that happens, people don't feel agency over Mm. those thoughts. Mm-hmm. And the same happens when there's a breakdown in the sense of um, authorship. Mm-hmm. So you may have seen, and many people have seen Dr. Strangelove, the classic movie mm-hmm. um, where the guy can't control his limb. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like trying to strangle himself. Yeah, yeah. There are people with what's called an- anarchic hand syndrome mm-hmm. who basically have a limb that um, acts according to its own volitions, as they describe it. And they don't feel any authorship over it. They know it's their limb. They know it's on their body. It belongs to them. So they feel ownership, but no authorship. Um, and so there's all kinds of these ways where the self could easily sort of fall apart. Mm. And by looking at those, you could start to reconstruct, well, why do we have this sense of self? Mm. And in my first book, I sort of give an account based on cognitive science and based on a particular theory of consciousness that I, 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 I tend to uh, lean towards called the higher order thought theory. Mm-hmm. I won't get into the details, but um, there are various ways you can account for how that self gets created over time. Uh, but it's such a fragile thing and th- there's no unity to it. Like D- David Hume had this very famous, in fact, maybe Hume is a sort of precursor of this Buddhist idea he says, every time I reflect upon my actions, everything, every time I, I reflect on this inner stream, 
of consciousness. I never perceive a self. I only perceive a particular belief or a particular desire or a particular willing. Hmm. I only perceive particulars. Um, no self, no, no robust thing that you would call or associate with the self. Um, and I think that there's a, um, there's a sort of, it just gets built up over time that we collect all of these unified individual events and ascribe them to a consistent self. Yeah. Um, and then we start to see that self as the agent for our actions. But there are various ways that that could just go wrong. It could go awry and it could break down. And it shows you just how fleeting and how, um, you know, how, how uh, tendential that, that feeling of self is. Yeah. And how lucky in a way we are that we experience it. I'm not saying, you know, it's a, that you'd be better off without it. Mm. There's mm. very important evolutionary reasons why we probably have this sense of self. Mm. But it, it, it's, 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 it's kind of unique. And what, one thing that always sort of, re, you know, struck me um, is that we feel agency over certain types of mental events, but not others. So we feel agency and free will over sometimes our thoughts or mm. sometimes mm. our actions. But we don't have the same feeling about what I would call sensory states. When I look out my window and I see the tree in the backyard, um, I don't feel like I had any free will over that perception. It's a combination of my functioning vision and a tree yeah. causes in me the perception of a tree. I didn't freely bring it about. Um, and we have that feeling about most sensory experiences, the pain, the mosquito bite, I didn't freely cause those things. Mm, they mm, are mm. my perception of what's happening to me. Yeah. But we don't feel that way, or we feel more, I think, agency over my political belief, mm, or over mm. my musical tastes, my desires for certain artists, or my desire for black, or my preference for black. Yeah. I feel like I choose that. I control that. But my argument would be that both of them are the byproduct of causes, and both of them are a byproduct of factors that are triggering various things. And mm. but the, we experience them differently because the way we represent them to ourselves. Mm. We represent mm. sensory states as caused by some external thing. And it's usually because it's present. Yeah. When I experience a tree, other than illusions, it's because there's a tree there. And it's the cause of my perception of a tree. And so yeah. I attribute that. You can attribute that. it easily. Yeah. 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 We can't necessarily easily see the causes of our beliefs, our desires, our preferences. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and they're usually just diffused. They're not just one cause. The cause for my political belief, for example, is not going to be one singular event. It's yeah. going to be a host of different events. Yeah. And so it's, e it's harder for us to identify them. We don't represent them to ourselves mm -hmm. um, in the same way. Yeah. Um, and evolutionarily speaking, it would require too much cognitive energy to represent those states along with their causes. There'd be no benefit. But yeah. there is a benefit, evolutionarily speaking, to represent not only the pain, but the cause of the pain. Mm -hmm. Because, well, I want to make sure I remove myself from the circumstances that are causing the pain. So yeah. there's an evolutionary benefit that we, we evolve so that we represent certain states along with their causes, but we don't do so for others. For others, yeah. And, and for some, some, um, some are simple, just simpler because they're so self-evident almost. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a lion. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I don't need to think about this much. I know exactly where this is going to go. Uh, but for my thoughts or my thinking patterns or, uh, uh, you know, even my choices, quote-unquote, you know, if we, if we had various dials for all the various 
forces that might impact, uh, yes. you know, have impacted in vitro life. You know, it's just a matter of turning these dials ever so minutely differently for different people as they inevitably would have, you know, through the different bumpers that we've hit in our lives. But to calculate that will just, well, in fact, it, you know, it's, it's impossible because you can never really know all the forces that were at play that it's turned my dials one way or another, uh, which, yeah. which, which I think again, it brings us down to the, to the absolute inevitability of, you know, that, you know, things have caused uh, what, what I am now and things going forward, you know, will also be caused by what's happening, uh, uh yeah. around me now. I'm conscious of our time, and this is such a fascinating discussion. I, I, I think we could spend days talking about this, but I, but I do want to maybe pivot to what you know to what this podcast is ultimately about, and that is war and conflict, and, and maybe launch us into uh, uh, some slightly murkier waters, maybe uh, because I want to see how this, and then lead us down to the idea of uh, and to your quarantining model. Uh, but certainly, I want to try and figure out how this applies. To geopolitics as one, right? Because it applies at a micro level, but it applies at a society level. And of course, at the global level and interplay between nations, uh, because if, you know, if free will is not a thing, uh, then it's not a thing for civilization, for geopolitics, for inter, you know, relationships between China, US, for every war that we've had. It's a, it's a, it's, you know, th- there are, uh, causes upstream that have led us to that, to, to every interaction uh, that exists. How do you view that kind of maybe Bigger macro level picture. Yeah, it, it's it's complicated, and so it <laughs> yeah. how, how we're going to link up these these kind of issues with public policy. Um, but I think the connection is most apparent for me in terms of more responsibility in in, in say conditions of conflict. Um, mm-hmm. So one area, and this is not my area of specialty, but one area that I've, I have thought about a little bit is um, sometimes what's called transitional justice, mm-hmm. um, the kind of um, processes that occur, let's say, after a genocide. Yeah. And we have to go back and figure out um, how best to proceed. Or in, in South Africa, the most classic case is after apartheid, the mm-hmm. process of reconciliation. Um, and so one way you can go is you go back and you try to hold everyone accountable. You go mm-hmm. back and you hold everyone responsible for their individual actions. Um, that's one process and that's retributive. And that might be that we go back and we want to give all of those um, people their just desserts mm-hmm. by punishing all the war criminals and, and, and punishing all the individual actors who committed wrongdoing during this, this kind of mm-hmm. uh, war or conflict or genocide. Um, the other approach is what they employed sort of in South Africa, which, which was um you, you, you can, you, and I think this is more consistent with free will skepticism, is that you can first engage in a kind of fact-finding mission. There's nothing in free will skepticism that doesn't allow us to acknowledge wrongs. Mm-hmm. So, for example, what I call axiological judgments of right and wrong and good and bad, those mm-hmm. remain in place, even if we reject the idea that individuals are deserving in some basic sense of punishment or blame. So the idea that even if, um, say, a criminal with a certain kind of neurological di- di- disorder, a brain tumor, mm-hmm. goes mm-hmm. on a shooting spree and kills a bunch of people, um, we would not as- as- attribute freedom to that individual because it was a byproduct of this tumor. Um, yet we could still say that what he did was bad, mm. and what you know, and what happened to those people was wrong. There's nothing preventing us from saying that, and there's nothing that requires free will for us to say that. We mm. can still make those axiological judgments. But we wouldn't it's hold the, him morally accountable. Right. 
and so we can do the same in cases where we could say that what Hitler did was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could say that the actions are can be judged. We could have a fact-finding um, uh, 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 process, and this mm-hmm. is what they did in South Africa, acknowledge the wrongs done. But instead of seeking retribution and payback, um, they decided to um, uh, move forward, engage in a process of reconciliation to reconstruct and, and, and basically do the best they could to um, um, affect things moving forward. Mm, mm. Um, and so I think on the geopolitical level, there's different ways one could go, and I think different circumstances have to be discussed differently. But mm. um, on one level, I think that one thing we often do is um, spend too much time looking backward and too much time seeking blame, mm. um, where what would be most beneficial would be um, to consider forward-looking factors like reconciliation, mm forward-looking safety, what would make us most safe, what would provide the best outcomes. And in an interpersonal level, you might also say moral formation. I care about you as an individual. I want to do what would be worst effective in in shaping you as a moral being. Hmm. Uh, If you think about it on the interpersonal level, like me parenting my daughter, for example, she does something wrong. Well, I could be retributive. I can Mm -hmm. resort to moral anger or backward-looking blame. Or... I could ask her to reflect upon her choice, ask her to see if there was something in herself that was, you know, the cause for that choice, and then ask her what she could do differently moving forward to make different choices. Mm -hmm. And that moral conversation, that moral exchange would be justified, not on what's called dessert grounds, not because she deserves it, but on what are considered forward-looking grounds, in particular, concern for uh, moral, moral development, I want to, as a parent, develop a moral child who makes better choices, mm-hmm. reconciliation, and and future safety. Right. Mm-hmm. So those would be the justifications for these kind of um, um, moral exchanges. Yeah. And you could even express sort of moral disapproval, and you could even have a kind of moral protest mm-hmm. where you say that what that you did was wrong and. Um, you could ask people to reflect upon the choices to see what we could do differently. But what I, one thing I find really hard is judging people in these contexts of war and judging people in the context of conflict. Mm. Um, and partly, again, it's because of my thoughts on luck. Mm. Um, yeah. if, if you're a child born into a war-torn region, and your choices are jump on that pickup truck, grab a machine gun and start killing this group or join the other group and jump on that pickup truck and start killing the other mm. or say, I'm going to try to stay out of it. But by doing so, see your sister raped and mutilated and sold into slavery, your mother mm. slaughtered, mm. maybe your own hands cut off as a consequence. Would you be capable of murder in the right context? And mm. I think that what we often forget we tend to think of ourselves as having such moral fiber and moral strength that I wouldn't engage in certain mm. types of acts. I could never engage in any kind of atrocities. But I, I, the sad fact, I think, is that almost anyone is capable of anything in the right circumstances. And it's by the good graces of luck, you know, that they're there, but therefore for the grace of God go I. Well, therefore, but the grace of luck go I. Yeah. That if I were unlucky enough, to be thrown into those circumstances. If I were unlucky enough to be put in exactly that same situation, 
I myself might have engaged in exactly those same acts. Mm -hmm. I was just lucky enough not to be morally tested in yeah. that particular kind of way. Yeah. And no one wants to acknowledge this about themselves. But like, if you were a 16 year old growing up in Nazi Germany, mm. um, and you were socialized to have those beliefs about Jews and disabled people and gypsies and, and other groups, mm. if you were socialized to have these kinds of attitudes, if you were raised in this political and economic situation, if you were put to the test of being having authority figures tell you to engage in certain acts, would you have the strength to pass that test? Yeah. And I think the only thing we could say is we're just lucky not to have been tested in that. That's way. right. Yeah. yeah. And and that unfortunate person was unlucky to have been tested in that mm. way. Yeah. But that's a test, that's a moral test that is a byproduct of luck. We just don't know how mm. we would you know, what we would do. And I think it's very hard for me to morally judge individuals in those kinds of contexts. That's not to say, again, that what they did was right or good mm. or excusable, or that some people should just be let to go run free and say, okay, that was just the context of war. And so we'll wash it all clean and, and mm. get, there are mm. no consequences. But I do think we have to think about it differently. Yeah. And I think and the more we learn yeah. from sorry, one last thing. The more we yeah, learn please, from yeah. psychology, the more we learn from things like the Milgram shock experiments, where the person just says, "Turn it up," and most people turn it up. Yeah, right. Um, and you would say, "I would never do that to an yeah, innocent person." Right. Shock them to the point on the meter where it says "fail." Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. But people will do it um, because it's someone in the left told them to do it. Um, and the more we learn about situationalism and how context can can drive individual in you know actions i think the more we realize that um people don't have the strong moral character that we tend to think we have that it's much more situational and that there can be things that situationally can affect our behavior um in ways that necessarily you know aren't because of some deep seated value yeah. we have but because you know some authority told us to do it or because of peer pressure or because the context of war or conflict. Um, and so I think that it, it can affect our geopolitical policies and our attitudes um, if we begin to think more about the circumstances. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, that is this one of the things that I'm trying to wrestle with because notwithstanding the point you made about genocide, because, I mean, I come from a country where, you know, Bosnia, where genocide uh, yeah. you know, is a real thing and was a real thing. But also, uh, more recently in the Australian military, we've had some of our soldiers accused of war crimes, uh, and there's a bunch of investigations. So I certainly don't want to question anything or, or, or even uh, call that call, call the investigation in question. That let let the courts do what they need to do. But uh, one of the things that I'm trying to draw attention to is that, okay, things have probably happened, sure, but we have to realise the context and what led to them. Uh, and, and I certainly try to argue against this idea of a few bad apples that have gone and done these bad deeds. Well, I think it's broader than that. I think there's, uh, it's the, it's, it's the circumstance. It's the bumpers that have ultimately led these things, uh, to occur. And we, you know, where we start superimposing things over the top that we know, for example, what fatigue does to our, uh, moral and ethical decision making. We know that, you know, if you don't sleep enough, that, you know, your ethical decision making will degrade. We know that if you've, uh, the peer pressure has an impact. We know that if you've seen your, peers, friends die, 
that that will impact how you make a decision. We know that if a loss of a sense of purpose will impact how you make, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are all these Let conditions. Add one, let me add one yeah. to that. Um, yeah. You know, from, for example, I've done a little work on white collar crime recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we know how um, the culture of the unit or of the, the particular leadership yeah. could affect it. So like, People who commit white collar crimes often is because you're in, um, like, let's say you're a financial um, mm -hmm. group where greed is sort of the norm and competitiveness drives decisions. People see the opportunity for shortcuts and they take them. But if there's a culture that that fosters that kind of cheating, that mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. uh, gaming the system, um, people are more likely to succumb to the context of the culture. Mm -hmm. um, and if you create a different culture, um, you can get different outcomes and you yeah. can nudge people in the right directions. So we also want to understand the causes, not simply so we can um, forgive people or, or not hold them accountable, but we want to understand the condition, the causes because we want to prevent them from happening again in the future. Exactly. That's one of the main reasons why we want to understand the con contextual causes, not just all, because if you think it's all about individual responsibility, then you don't need to change the culture. That's right. We're good. Yeah. I failed. And his, and his, and his, it's um, the individual's fault. Hang them out to dry. It's not anyone else's fault. It's not the culture of the, the yeah. bank's fault. It's not the trading, um, you know, the, the context of trading that's that fault. It's the individual. But if you understand that, you know, lots of people fall into um, poor choices because of, of, of contextual factors, and it could be the culture of the, the particular business they work mm -hmm. for, or it could be. These other situational factors like fatigue yeah. and, and, and yeah. conflict. Um, but I also want to make the, you know, I want the listeners to know that doesn't mean, again, we're excusing what they do. What we're saying is that, you know, we have to rethink our notion of, of dessert in this sort of basic sense. Because I have an example, and probably, you know, I've never shared it really in this context before, but my father was in the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And um, he was, uh, there was a book written by a colleague of his. and. My father plays a big role in the book. Um, and my father very rarely talked about war to me. Like, and I wish now he's, he's passed and I wish I had talked to him more. But there's mm. a story in the book um, about my father where he one day was um, uh, walking down to a riverbed, you know, to get water or wash their clothes or whatever it was. And halfway down the hill, he realized he didn't have his gun with him. Mm. And there was um, a woman. And every day they would have people... Um, uh, uh, surrendering but what they sometimes would do and you probably more familiar with this than i but like they might have a grenade with a pin pulled under their mm. arm and when they go mm. to raise their arm you know they they sacrifice themselves and, and mm. blow you up mm -hmm. um, and my father halfway down the hill didn't know what to do and he started picking up stones and throwing them at this woman like stoning her you know mm. Mm. um and it's easy for me to judge that and be like, yeah. well, it's such a it's such a wrong thing to do to like, but you got to think about the context of uncertainty. The context of the morality of conflict is different than the morality of everyday life. And it's and it's very hard. Mm. And it's also very hard for people to realize that um, when people come back from conflict, mm. that they've been they've been in a context where morality functions differently than everyday life. And now they're told to go back to the social norms of everyday life. That's a very hard thing to transition to. Mm. And so, you know, I, 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 I can't 
think of what I would do in that situation, but I also can't blame him for, yeah. for doing what he did in that situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even if it turns out to be an innocent person, you don't know the epistemic uncertainty of the case. Yeah. Um, the fear that gets the best of you when you're 18 years old and you're mm. in war and conflict. Yeah. yeah. Um, the maturity of, of youth in conflict. You also got to remember these are 18, 19 year old minds operating in life or death situations, you know, in a context where we don't even trust these people to drink and drive or to be mm. able to drink legally. It's mm. such a bizarre concept mm. that we give them guns and expect them to engage in, in um, high level decision making of life and death in the context of uncertainty and stress. And, mm. and so um, this is, again, not to excuse the decision making, yeah. but to yeah. understand that it could be a byproduct of the culture of the leadership like what happened in Vietnam, a lot of it came from the top down. Probably a lot of what happened in Abu Ghraib and, mm. and the atrocities that happened there. I mean, we hold the individual privates, you know, accountable yeah, for what right. they did. But it's probably the culture of the leadership mm. that allowed for that to happen. And yeah. they don't get held accountable. Well, I found it interesting that Phil Zimbardo, who, of course, yeah. ran the Stanford Prisoner Dilemma, which yeah, very much it. deals with this. He was one of the he was the. Uh, chief uh, expert witness, uh, defense witness uh, for I think the sergeant that ran the the center in Abu Ghraib, because oh, he, okay. it, it, which is amazing, uh, uh, yeah. because he's obviously after Stanford Prison Dilemma. He, as, as most of our listeners will know, that uh, that's that's again a social context that drives certain behaviors, uh, yeah. and he recognized that you know if this is the recipe you've got, you can't be surprised with the product you get at the end, uh, and realizing that the recipe you have will give you a, a very small, finite number of outcomes. Uh, and if you don't understand what the recipe is, uh, then don't be surprised if you don't understand by the outcome. And I think that's the, that's kind of, uh, you know, where, where, where my intention behind, well, behind this discussion ultimately was is to land exactly on this point, you know, that circumstances will dictate behavior beyond, yeah. ultimately beyond the control of the individual. And whilst yeah. it's, Comforting. And I don't think people realize yeah. how expensive that is. So like yeah. in my yeah. first book, um, I spent a lot of time on literature and social psychology. Mm. I have to acknowledge some of it has been thrown into doubt with this crisis of replication. And so some of the findings are um, are now not as clear as they used to be. But mm -hmm. there is at least a wealth of information on how situational factors can influence choices. So some really startling ones, like, for example, when you go to a liquor store, mm. they find that if you're playing classical music, people will spend 10% more on a bottle of wine mm. than if you're playing top 40. <laughs> now, the, the amazing thing about this kind of situational effects is that, A, when people ask, do you think the music had an impact on your purchase? They deny it. So not only are they not aware of the situational effect on their choice, they deny that mm. there was any sexual effect on their choice. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we could see over and over again how easy it is for these factors to influence our choices. And so mm. I, I laughed about the color of the wall, but we know that, for example, colors of the wall can influence mood. And so I can almost guarantee you that if you go to any psych ward in the country, you're not going to find the walls painted fire engine red. Yeah, yeah. And that's because they're painted soothing, calming colors. And so are schools. Um, because they know certain colors could have certain effects on one's emotional states, and those emotional states could affect behavior. Um, 
there's a number of, 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 of really rich examples of how these situational factors, like there's an example that goes back, it's I think sort of the birth of this literature, mm -hmm. when they had um, pay phones around cities. Yeah. And so they placed the dime in the return. So a lot of people check the return to see if there's any cash in there before they, they make a phone call. Mm -hmm. And then they had someone, an actor essentially, walk by and drop papers. And the effects couldn't be any greater. What they found was 90% of the people who found a dime in the return stopped and helped the person. Mm. <laughs> Only 10% of the people who did not find a dime stopped and stopped, helped. Yeah. Now, if you ask the person, why did you help or why did you not help? You're gonna say something about your own moral character or you're gonna say, oh, the person was in need and so I helped them. And mm. you might think, well, I'm the kind of person that would help someone yes. in need. Yeah. But yeah. what these findings show is it's not really about character. It's about circumstances. And so the, I, the general explanation is that finding a dime, even though it's kind of inconsequential, puts one in a good mood. And when one's in a good mood, they're more likely to help others. Yeah. The power yeah. of framing, right? Like yeah, Robert Cialdini framing. persuasion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There are thousands of these kinds of findings that show us how very small, crazy, inconsequential things can nudge us in various directions to make various decisions. Hmm. Um, and it's amazing that we know this when we think about consumerism. And when we think about advertising, people spend millions of dollars in picking the logos and the colors and um, paying for placement on various shelves. We know if a product is placed at eye level, it's more likely to be purchased than if it's at the higher level or lower level. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, look at social media now. We, I mean, th these algorithms know us better than we know ourselves. And we know this. We yeah. know this to be true that, you know, you know add you know, I need shoes because, uh, you know, six months ago I bought a pair of shoes and the algorithms were calculated that, you know, knowing how much I've tracked my running, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to be time for new shoes. And all of a sudden the ad pops up on my Facebook, et cetera. I mean, these are, <laughs> these algorithms know us better than we know ourselves. We know this to be true, but we reject, yeah. still we, we deny how programmable we truly are, which I find yeah. absolutely fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I can't let you go without, and, and also, firstly, I just want to acknowledge the fact that uh, you're spot on. When I talked about genocides and war crimes and so on, this is by no means to suggest that they are excusable in the sense yeah. that they're okay. They are absolutely wrong, but I think we need to invest the time to, to understand what has led to these things as opposed to merely blaming the individuals. But uh, I just want to touch on your quarantining model because that's that's a critical question because if we do accept free will skepticism, or if we deny that free will exists, I think one of the inevitable responses, certainly that I experienced with most people, oh, so what, you just let every criminal, you know, do what they yeah. want and, you know, you know, what's going to stop me from, you know, now, you know, becoming a murderer, et cetera. Um, yeah. You know, how, how, how do we deal with crime uh, uh, if we, it, it, on a kind of societal level, accept that, well, hold on, conditions do create behavior and therefore we can't just blame the individual as we have in the traditional sense. Yeah. So I've been working my, my, my book rejecting retributivism, uh, it's called free will punishment, criminal justice is my attempt to spell out this account in its fullest form. Um, but I've been developing it for, for a number of years mm. and it builds off a of work done by Dirk Kiruboom as well. Um, it's called the public health quarantine model and it has the public health part and the quarantine part. So the quarantine part is pretty straightforward. The idea is something like this. While free will skepticism is true, then no one is morally responsible in this basic dessert sense. Um, and so, th therefore, criminals wouldn't be morally responsible in this basic dessert sense. 
but neither are people with communicable diseases. So let's say I travel to Australia to uh, have a drink with you in person or something. And along the way, I contract Ebola. And so I test positive um, when I arrive in Australia. Um, I think that everyone would agree that the state would be justified in quarantining me and limiting my liberty. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I have free will or morally responsible for having contracted the Ebola. Retribution and punishment doesn't even seem fitting mm. in this mm -hmm. context. But the justification for limiting the liberty and quarantining the individual would be the right of self-defense and preventional harm to others, i.e. we would, just like we all now know with, with <laughs> yeah. current COVID situation, we could justify restricting liberty um, and quarantining individuals on, on the grounds of public health and safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the argument for um, the analogy would be that we could we could develop an incapacitation account for seriously dangerous criminals. So when you have a serial killer or child molester or repeat violent offender, we could justify incapacitating them, meaning holding them, restricting their liberty. Um, on the grounds of the right of self-defense and prevention of harm to others, analogous to the justification mm -hmm. we have for quarantining people with communicable diseases. Mm -hmm. So so we could say that um, the serial killer needs to be incapacitated um, because they pose a forward-looking threat to society. And um, we could restrict their liberty to protect public health and safety. And the re justification is the right of self-defense. Um, mm -hmm. And you could do that without appealing to free will or assuming moral responsibility or um, uh, or retribution or payback or giving them their just desserts. But I want to make a couple of things clear. When you do that, a number of really important reforms follow and, mm. and are really important for, for how we would implement this in the criminal justice system. For one, not only do I view it as non-retributive, I view it as non-punitive. Mm -hmm. meaning not, not really punishment at all, an alternative to punishment. Yeah. You don't punish the Ebola patient. You but by no intuitive definition is it punishment, yet you are restricting their liberty. Yeah. And so what I would argue is we're justified in restricting the liberty of these individuals, but we're not justified in dehumanizing them or uh, disenfranchising them or stripping them of all their other basic rights. So for me, you could justify quarantining me at the airport because I have Ebola, um, but you can't justify taking away my voting rights mm, or mm, telling mm. me I can't apply for public housing. And so all of those disenfranchisement um, and all those issues that we see, like voter disenfranchisement, housing disenfranchisement mm -hmm. associated with, with the criminal justice system, especially in the United States. The other thing would be when you quarantine the individual, that the story doesn't end there. The, you have a moral duty to treat that Ebola patient mm -hmm. and then release them the minute they're no longer communicable, that they could spread the disease. And so what I would argue is that the criminal justice system would have to reorient itself to rehabilitation and reintegration. The goal should be to re rehabilitate and reintegrate people as quickly as possible and that you lack any justification for continuing to hold them the minute they're no longer a threat. And so it's not about, um, you know, giving them their just desserts for what they've done. It's about protecting society. Mm -hmm. And the right of self-defense allows me to limit their freedom, but only to the extent that is necessary. So I embrace what I call the principle of least infringement. Mm -hmm. You have to adopt the least restrictive measure possible consistent with, with protecting public health and safety, which means many of the things we currently incarcerate people for, we 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 better dealt with by alternatives to incarceration. Like if I sneeze on you and you get sick, um, I've caused you some harm. 
but we don't quarantine people for the common cold. Hmm. We restrict quarantine to very rare, very extreme, very precise, limited cases. Hmm. Um, and so I would say the same thing for incapacitation. We shouldn't use it as a default for all criminal wrongdoing. Hmm. It should be restricted to, you know, um, only very extreme sorts of violent crimes. And, and so when you look at the statistics, going back to what I suggested earlier, um, this is at least true in the United States, and it's true in lots of places like Australia and England. Um, the vast majority of people in the United States are imprisoned, um, have a diagnosable mental illness, hmm. over 50%. Um, I think um, some studies put it at about 64% mm. of jail patients have a, a mental illness. It's much higher among women. 75% of women incarcerated have a, um, a, a diagnosable mental illness. Wow. Many of them would be better dealt with by mental health services. Mm. That our jails have become de facto mental health institutions, which they're not suited for. Mm. Mm. Many people incarcerated in the United States are incarcerated for low-level low drug possession mm. or underlying addiction problems that cause them to commit other criminal acts. Well, many of them would be better dealt with by drug treatment. Yeah. Um, and my model is also consistent with the decriminalization of many things we currently incarcerate people for. So mm. the legalization of marijuana, for example. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and so we have to reevaluate why we incarcerate people for, how long we incarcerate people for, and whether the kind of offenses that we incarcerate them for really reach the level of threat to public safety that yeah. deemed that we really should. Yeah. And in many cases, you'll see that better alternatives exist. Yeah. The public, let me just say very quickly, yeah. just the public health part, which I think is the really innovative part, is to reorient the focus to prevention and social justice. So we already have a well-established public health um, framework for addressing health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at, like, say, infant mortality rates, around the world. You might say, let's look at India and why are children um, dying in childbirth at higher rates? Hmm. Um, and so what you'll often find is that these poor, poor health outcomes are the byproducts of underlying, underlying social injustices. Mm -hmm. In this case, largely sexism. Women don't have reproductive control over their bodies. They don't have access to birth control. Mm -hmm. They often have no say in how many children they have. Mm. Um, and, and they often lack literacy, so they can't leave their husbands if they, if they want to or work for mm. themselves. Mm. And so if you address the underlying inequalities, often infant mortality rates equal out, yeah. they drop. And so, um, and so what you often find is like type 2 diabetes. Well, that's higher in poorer black and brown communities and heart disease. And it's often due to structural injustices, like they don't have access to persistent, consistent health care. Hmm. If you had universal health care or access to health care or preventative care, these poor health outcomes go away or equalize. Hmm. And so what we want to do then is if you see violent or criminal behavior as a byproduct of social of social determinants, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the public health framework says that what we should do is identify the social determinants, prioritize them, um, and then figure out best practices for how yeah. to address them and how to address the social underlying structures that cause the behavior in the first place. Yeah. And so what I want to do in my work is sort of move us away from the reactive approach, mm -hmm. where we simply react to crime with punitive measures, to a preventative approach where we see individuals holistically as embedded in social systems mm. and adopt practices and policies that are aimed at prevention and addressing 
racism, sexism, structural inequality, educational inequity, um, unequal access to healthcare, um, homelessness. And, and what you'll figure out is that this is going to produce better outcomes. Yeah. It's more effective than punishment, traditional punishment, and it keeps us safer and it and it's better for all of society. Yeah. And you have yeah. a self-interest in it because in the end you're better protected, you're less susceptible to violence. Um, it, it, it's a win-win and it's more humane. Um, and so I tend to see this. So I owe you a story, right? Of, I'm a free will skeptic. What do mm-hmm. I do with the serial killer? Well, I could justify incapacitating them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that, you know, there will be dangerous people and there will be a need for quarantine and incapacitation for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not to say that we should view everyone as, as, you know, responsible and therefore give them their just desserts. We need to incapacitate them for our safety. But on the other hand, we also need to fix the circumstances yeah. and change them so that other people don't end up in the same place. Yeah, that's right. And again, change the, the guardrails that that, that we, we have enough evidence to support yeah. this. This is not... Uh, it, it, Recently, we lived, me and my partner lived in Sweden for three years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Scandinavian countries. I mean, it is just a, it is a different relationship between the citizen to the state and the state to the citizen and how you're viewed and and the guardrails that exist to allow you, you know, not necessarily uh, uh, equal outcomes, uh, but equal opportunity, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the, at least from what I could see, most well-meaning way right it's it's not utopia in there isn't utopia but it certainly has uh, many characters that i would like to see in the australian society as well you know the way the state is viewed and the way the state views the citizen uh, i think is vastly different to what we used to and also it, it it's far more empathetic and i think this is what what you're suggesting as well as the idea of free will skepticism it would immediately make us more empathetic to others to yeah. other other people suffering as opposed to allowing us as it does now to get on our high horse and say well it's their own fault yeah especially when you realize given the wealth of data that crime mm, is yes. all a byproduct of circumstances than mm-hmm. the people yeah in that you know again the lives of the individuals who you, if you go into a prison and you look at the lives of those people who are incarcerated they're filled with hardship and abuse and injustice yeah. Um, and there's, you know, it, again, you know, also we just have this idea that, you know, would you want to be judged by your worst act? Mm. Um, and what we do is we take the worst deed that someone has done yeah. and we tag them with that. We label them like a scarlet letter for the rest of their lives, mm. which basically excludes the possibility of redemption and, re- and excludes the possibility of rehabilitation. It, yeah. it tags you as a criminal or a felon, and therefore you're a felon for life. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, um, it's again, not to forgive people or to just excuse people, but to say, like, you know, we know that there are byproducts that drive these kind of things. Hmm. We want to change those. We also want to rehabilitate people, um, both for their well-being and for my well-being. We all hmm. have a stake. Um, yeah. And you mentioned the Scandinavian countries. They... Um, have a, they're not fully there, but they're closer mm, yeah, there yeah. in that they have um, a, a system that is focused on rehabilitation and reintegration, mm, far yeah. less punitive, far less retributive, um, and they understand the investment part of it. So, for example, and, and by the way, they get better outcomes. 
Yeah, less recidivism, right? I mean, far, far yeah. lower rates of, of reincarnation. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you think about it, uh, the United States makes up only about 4.5% of the world's population. It's a really small mm, mm. segment of the world overall population, but we house 25% of the world's prisoners. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that is the highest rate of incarceration yeah. known to any civilization. We incarcerate 700 people for every 100,000 people. Norway, Denmark, Sweden, they're about 60 people for every 100,000. Mm, yeah. um, Australia is 170 for every 100,000. We're literally incarcerating 10 times as many people. Mm, so mm. one out of every 31 Americans, one out of 31 is yeah. somewhere in the criminal justice system. That is just... Parole, probation, mm, prison, bonkers. jail, yeah. somewhere in that net, one out of 31. Wow. It's a highly... Um, you know, criminalized society. Mm. And we have poor outcomes. We have one of the worst rates of recidivism, which is repeat mm. crime. Um, it's nearly 76% wow. of prisoners yeah. wow. um, will be rearrested within the first five years of release. Norway and countries like that, they have one of the lowest rates of recidivism, yeah. Yeah. Um, somewhere around 20%. Mm. And they incarcerate such a smaller population and for a much shorter period of time. 90% of, of people in, in, that are sentenced in Norway will serve less than a year. Yeah. So only about 10% of people serve more than a year, yeah. whereas the vast majority of people in the United States are serving lengthy sentences. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. And many are serving either life sentences or virtual life sentences, meaning they're going to die aging out in their sentence. Um, and we're not better off for this. And that's, and, and I think that's the, the that's is, the key point. Yeah. 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 One of the reasons is we take a punitive approach. We take the person, we strip them naked when they arrive, mm. we cage them, we house them in in inhumane environments, we control every aspect of their lives when they eat, when they wake up, we deny them educational opportunity and work training, and then we release them and expect them to be model citizens. Well, yeah. it just intuitively doesn't make any sense. That's right. What we find is that prison educational programs alone reduce recidivism by 40%. Yeah, that's, and that, that's amazing. Money. That's amazing. For every dollar we spend, it saves us $5. Wow, that's a, that, that in itself, that figure alone, 40% reduction yeah. purely through education. I mean, that in itself should, should, you know, and I'm sure the research is sound and repeatable, etc. That should drive policy, but you know, it's it, yeah, it, it doesn't it, because it's, it's, it's like crazy. You said earlier, people have this strong individualistic streak, right. and and they have you know they have beliefs. They'd say like, well, I can't even afford to send my kid to college. Why should taxpayers pay That's right. to send prisoners to yeah. college? Well, yeah. part of the reason is it's in your self interest, and the other part of it is it actually saves your taxpayer dollars. Yeah, because if you don't. It, every dollar we spend, it saves us five because the property damage mm -hmm. that that creates a cost to society, yeah. the, the legal fees, the court fees, yeah. the yeah. fees that it costs to house individuals in prison, all of us are paying that. Yeah. And we're paying more than if we were to simply provide them with uh, training and opportunity and and uh, and give them the skills necessary to succeed. Yeah. The short, short term kind of vision of, uh, well, it's going to, you know, and, and like you said, I think you're spot on, you know, why, why would I pay for, you know, prisoners, criminals to get education when my children can't? I think that's a, again, it comes down to this idea of, you know, well, in our capitalist societies of individualism and meritocracy, uh, yeah. you know, everybody gets their just desserts, right? Yeah. Whatever they've, uh, they've earned. Um, Greg, I, I'm blown away. I, 
I knew I would enjoy this conversation, but I've enjoyed it far more than I thought I would. Thank you so much. I, I, I know we've uh, touched on many different subjects, but is there anything that you find is important that we haven't uh, uh, touched on that, that, that springs to mind? Uh, there's so much more, but uh, I think I think this is a good place to leave it. Um, yeah. But I really enjoyed our conversation, and it's great that people are, and yourself included, are seeing connections even beyond uh, the areas that I've worked in. And so, um, thank you to the work that you do as well. Absolutely, no, I'm absolutely fascinated, and 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 looking forward to getting your most recent book in the mail uh, in the coming days uh, that I look forward to reading. Uh, but thank you very much for your time. I know it was uh, exceptionally early for you. Uh, I can see the sun slowly coming out behind you. Uh, so I hope you have a wonderful day and thank you thank so much for your time once again. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.